Well, I'm very happy and, and excited and uh, privileged to introduce to you uh, uh, Michael Imadi, uh, a choice servant of the Lord. Um, with the vigor of youth, with um, a brilliant intelligence, and well-prepared and well-fitted for this ministry uh, in Ireland. Uh, the confirmation of that uh, comes from the indigenous pastor and his congregation that have affirmed uh, all of these things. So I hope you'll listen closely. We're going to learn some things uh, that perhaps we didn't know previously. He's going to open our eyes and our hearts uh, to a missionary frontier that's worthy of and, and needful of such involvement. So I give you Michael Imari, missionary to Ireland. Well, let me start by saying thank you to everybody here for allowing me to have this opportunity to present to you a uh, a place, a country, and a people that I love, and I think a country that I, I think we think we know, but the reality is far more worse than I think we, we even realize. Uh, when I very first went to Ireland, uh, one of the dear brothers who picked me up made a special note to tell me that there are 44 shades of green in Ireland. And my, my, my brain can't contemplate 44 shades of any color. I can see, you know, light green, green, and maybe dark green, but that's it. So I, I looked through my wardrobe and found the only green shirt I had to, to try and work with this. But So what I want to do is just present to you Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and why they need the gospel. Let's see, where do I point this here? Okay, so this is just an outline of what we're going to be talking about. There we go. Uh, who we are. Oh, let me go back one. Who we are. Uh, my name is Michael Reza Imadi. I am the oldest of three sons. My dad is an Iranian. He was born uh, in a little town called Rezaye, right next to Lake Arumie in the northwest corner of Iran. My mom is an Idahoian. She, she grew up in many different parts of Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, Jordan Valley, and in Lewiston. So I was thankful for our dear brother yesterday from Lewiston. and glad to see that there's a church there now. So, uh, so my mom is from Idaho. My dad is from Iran. When my dad moved here, he was probably a nominal Muslim at best. He came in 1978, just a few months before the revolution happened in February of 79 when Ayatollah Khomeini came in and uh, just ruined the country. Uh, but he came, he came into, flew into D.C., uh, there was a guy there who said, can I take your, your luggage for you and help you? And he, he said, sure. And he took his luggage and never saw it again. So he, he then got on a Greyhound bus, and he took the Greyhound bus from D.C. and all the way to Idaho, where he went to uni uh, the University of Idaho there. And there he met my mom. Neither of them were Christians. Uh, they got married. Eventually, they moved to Virginia, uh, by that time, I was born, one of my brothers were, was born, and then my third brother, Sam, was born in Virginia. They were still not Christians, but they had a neighbor, uh, a neighbor who, if you want to talk about the, the perseverance of the saints, here is the perseverance, a neighbor who consistently asked my dad, can I talk to you about the Bible? And he would consi consistently say, no, I don't want to hear it. 
And this neighbor just persevered and would say, can I talk to you about the Bible? Until finally he gave in just to say, okay, let me just, I'll talk to you just to get you out of here. And he persevered, and from that conversation with his neighbor, he became a Christian. And, and uh, my mom is also a Christian now. At, uh, after I finished kindergarten, I, let's see, going into first grade, my family moved to Utah. And that is pretty much where I grew up. I, I spent about 25 years in Utah. All of my, all of my friends were Mormon. Uh, the culture that I knew was Mormon. We were in a church with maybe, maybe 15 to 20 people. That was my church. It was very small. It was a very tight-knit family. And we, we, we loved that church. It was a very, it was reformed soteriologically, but very dispensational. And that's the, the church that we grew up in. And it wasn't until later on, interestingly, as we started reading Pink, A.W. Pink, who brought us out of dispensationalism. And if you don't know, A.W. Pink's birthday was uh, two days ago on April 1st. So, um, so from that, we've kind of moved further into the reformed faith. So growing up in Utah, I had most of my friends were Mormons. I got to learn Mormonism in depth because that was all around me. Everything you do in Utah is centered around Mormonism, to the way you shop, to the way houses are built. And that seems funny to people who've never lived there, but it affects everything. And so you only think Mormonism. I say houses are built because lots of houses are built with particular storage cellars in the basement where Mormons will store food for their entire family for up, you know, from one year to five years. And so it's like an entire grocery store downstairs. Uh, but it's because of their theology. Their theology has, has affected even how they build houses. Uh, well, I, I went to the University of Utah, uh, graduated with a degree in political science and a minor in Persian of the Farsi language. And I commissioned as a second lieutenant, an intelligence officer in the U.S. Air Force. After, I, after graduation, I was sent to San Angelo, Texas, where I went to Intel School. And there I went to a tiny Reformed Baptist church. And when I got there, they were talking about the confession of faith. I had never heard of that before. This church, too, was very small. It had about ten people in it. Uh, but this is the church I went to. And I grew to love these people. And he was go- during Sunday school, he was going through the confession of and that was my first exposure to the 1689 Confession was in a small church in San Angelo, Texas. And the pastor of this church was uh, an older man who had heart problems. And after I'd been there for a while, he asked me one day, he said, would you, would you be able to preach for me on Sunday? And I said, no, thank you. That, that terrifies me. I, I, I don't think I can do that. So he, he didn't make me do it. Well, he asked me like a month later, he said, I need some help. Can you do it? And I said, no, I, I can't do that. So he, he kept pressing me because he needed some help. And so finally I gave in and I preached a sermon and, and he was very supportive. The congregation was very supportive. And, and he really encouraged me to think about seminary and maybe getting into the ministry. So that was always in the back of my mind. I got uh, sent to, after I graduated Intel school, I got sent to Misawa, Japan, where I spent most of my time as an Intel officer doing something that my teachers at the Intel school said most of you will never do. And so we spent one day on it. So... Uh, I had a very interesting job, which uh, I can't tell you, but I will let you make lots of guesses, and I won't tell you if you're right or wrong. Um, But in the back of my mind was always this, uh, what my pastor had said in San Angelo, is just the ministry, the Bible, and and I had just started to to love to study and to read the Bible. And and so what happened in in God's providence, the Air Force 
was uh, they needed money. I think they had spent too much money on the, the new S22s, and so they said, we're going we're gonna to rack and stack everybody, and this bottom percent, you're just, basically, you're getting fired. You're going to go, we can't have you anymore, unless you volunteer to get out. So I had been really thinking about this, you know, what should I do? And, it, and I, I enjoy uh, James White, if you know who he is, uh, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. He has a, an internet radio show. And I was listening to this radio show uh, in Japan. It was probably like three in the morning. And he just happened to have two guys. I don't think you've ever heard their names before, but a man by the name of Dr. Sam Waldron and Rich Barcellus were on his program. And, and he said, you know, he's the dean of the Midwest Center for Theological Studies. And, and because in Japan... Japan, as you guys know, is a mission field. They have nothing. There was no church there. So by the grace of God, I had a a library of Puritans and good theology and James White to keep me centered while I was there. And in my mind, I thought, well, here, James White is, uh, he's obviously favorable of these two gentlemen, so let me consider this seminary. So the time came, I, I told the Air Force I'd like to get out and I want to pursue the ministry. And so I Got out in April of 2007. I moved to Kentucky, to Owensboro, started the MCTS. Uh, that's where I met my future wife, Ashley O'Neill. You can see there. Uh, she, she grew up in Owensboro uh, at that church. It was also during that time I was at the MCTS that I, I told uh, Dr. Waldron, I said, I, have, I really have two... Two things that I love, two passions in my heart. One is, one is for Iran, because my dad is, is from there. I love Iran, uh, and, and also I love Ireland. I have no connection to Ireland. My family is not from Ireland. But I remember being very little, just very tiny, and just having a fascination with it. I would just sit and watch documentaries on Ireland just because I liked it. It was fun, and it was interesting. And so, you know, it, it was just over time, this love for a place that I had never been to just kept growing in me. Well, uh, Dr. Waldron said, well, we, we don't know anybody in Iran. I can't get you in there. But we do know Matthew Brennan. So, you know, why don't you call up him and see if you can come for a couple weeks in, in the summer. So I did that. And he said, sure, come on over. So I spent three weeks with, with Matthew Brennan and then three weeks with Stephen Murphy in, in Dundalk and, and had a great time. And... Uh, I think probably unbeknownst to everybody, but my then-girlfriend, Ashley, when I got home from that trip, I told Ashley, I said, you know, if God would allow me to do anything that I wanted to serve him, I would love to go back to Dundalk and work with Stephen Murphy. And that was the only thing I said, and didn't think anything else of it, because it was a crazy dream, and never thought that was ever going to happen. So... So I finished through the MCTS, transferred over to Reformed Baptist Seminary, graduated from there. And during that time, I really got a love for the biblical languages. And I wanted to do further study. Dr. Barcellus always told me that whenever I get married, I was going to do my, uh, my family devotion from the footnotes of Dan Wallace's Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. And I tried that, and Ashley didn't find it as interesting as I did. So I had to switch. Her, she, did, she, didn't, she, she didn't have that passion there about the Granville Sharp rule that I do for some reason. So, um, so I, I wanted to study the biblical languages more. So I got a, uh, by the grace of God, a full-ride scholarship to Houston Baptist University where I got a second master's in uh, biblical languages. And that was a great time because I did nothing for uh, a year and a half but look at Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And that was 
it was one of my best educational times. It was so fun. I, I just enjoyed it to no end. Um, well, during that time, we had been talking with Stephen and, and, and really considering, you know, should we pursue this? Should we try to get to Ireland? And after much prayer and talking and, and uh, just trying to figure out, is this where God is leading us? Ashley and I decided this is, this is where we feel God is, is, is calling us. And so we've been per- pursuing it uh, since then. We have three kids, Liam is our oldest son. He'll, be, he'll actually be four in May. Lorelai is two. She's actually going to be three in, in June. They're 13 months apart. And then our youngest, who we just had on November 14th, is Maeve. Hopefully you'll get to see her. Am I pointing it the wrong way? That's not me. That's a picture of Ireland, just in case you were confused. Can I push the button here? Oh, there we go. There's Maeve. There's Maeve. She's a very sweet baby. She's very happy, which I'm thankful for. All right, there we go. So a little bit about Ireland. Ireland has roughly four and a half million souls. It's, uh, when I talk about Ireland, what I mean, we're talking about the Republic of Ireland. So everything that you see here in this reddish-pink color, that's the Republic of Ireland. Up here is Northern Ireland, which is still a part of the, the U.K. and Britain. So here's when I talk about Ireland, I'm talking about right here. Uh, four and a half million souls. The size is about 32,600 square miles. To try to bring that into our, uh, our understanding of what that could be or relate it to something we know, it's about the size of Indiana. Indiana is about 35,000 square miles and has a, a population roughly of 6.5 million souls. So we're talking roughly Indiana. Let me talk about the spiritual state of Ireland really quick. And I think this is surprising to most people because we have a concept of what we think Ireland is, uh, but it's actually far worse than, than I think what we even realize. After, <clears throat> excuse me, after about 40 years now of intense evangelical, uh, evangelism and uh, outreach, Ireland has reached 1% of their population is evangelical. Between 1980 and 2006, the number of evangelicals tripled in Ireland, and it's still about 1%. So let me put this in perspective for you, what that means. I chose these countries at random. I was just thinking of countries that we send missionaries to. I just want to give you an idea of where does Ireland fall in, in the places that we send missionaries. So here we go. Angola. 22% of their population is evangelical. Ethiopia, 18% of their population is evangelical. Malaysia, 3.5% is evangelical. Egypt is 3.5%. India, 1.5%. Mongolia is 1.5%. Oman, 
Niger, 0.14%. So where does, it, just among these, these countries, where does Ireland fall? It falls in between Mongolia and Oman. So here's a, a list of countries where we, we are sending missionaries to, and rightly so. I'm not calling that we, saying we don't, but we think of Ireland as a place that has the gospel, that, that really doesn't need missionaries. But in this context, the number of evangelicals, the percentage of evangelicals in Ireland comes in between Mongolia and Oman. Now, while Oman may have you know, a broader population of Muslims, interestingly, in, in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, the population of, of Muslims is small. It's only 2 to 2.2%. But what does that mean? It means that Muslims outnumber evangelicals 2 to 1. So just reach 1% evangelical. There are over 120 towns with no evangelical presence at all. That means no church and, and a lot of them, no Christians that we even know of. This is really interesting, I think. There exists roughly one church for every 17,520 people. Now, this, this stat, <coughs> we may not, we, we probably won't be in, in agreement with what I mean here by church. What it, this includes in this stat was churches that are Pentecostal, charismatic, um, and then uh, Presbyterian and Baptist churches are all included in this. But here you go. You have one church for every 17,520 people. And you also have a growing number of people who are following Neo-Druidism and New Age mysticism. In, If I remember correctly, it was a, a census around 2004 that they... They had the number, the number of Baptists was a little over 3,000. And they tried to figure out, well, what are the number of Druids in Ireland? And around that time, it was almost the exact same number of Neo-Druids as there were Baptists in Ireland. This picture right here is a, is a picture from Carlingford. I don't know if you can see what's on the, on the van there, but it says Fortune Teller. And a, a friend of mine who lives in Carlingford, Mick, he was telling me how he went and talked to, to the lady who was doing this. And... and he, he just he told me he said you know what it's, he said I don't know how to explain it I just I went over there to talk and he said you just feel this evil presence by you because this is not this is not uh, what's her name Miss Chloe you know you see on the TV where she would do like readings or fortune telling or something like that this was taken seriously that she is going to tell your future so you have a growing number of following uh, people following neo druidism and new age mysticism. <clears throat> This man you may have seen before. This is uh, Stephen Murphy. What I want to do really quick <clears throat> is, so not, you, you don't only hear me, but I want you to hear what uh, Stephen is, is says about some of these things. I, I did a, kind of an interview with him over Skype, and then I took some of what he said and recorded it so you could hear what he has to say about Ireland. So if you could play the first one, it says, The Average Irishman's Understanding of Christianity. Please. You understand the gospel to be good news. In other words, it actually makes a difference in a positive sense. Uh, most people don't need, know that they need a difference in a positive sense. So, like, to use my own example, you know, I, I was brought up, and it was only when I was at third level education that I actually started to read the Bible, that I actually heard the good news of who Jesus really is, um, of the fact that I needed to be converted 
that there is that promise of eternal life in the absolute ABCs of the gospel. You know, I managed to reach 23, 24 without hearing that in a quote-unquote Christian understand, We understand the gospel to be good news. Thank you. So, here's our, our dear brother who says that he, he got to the age of 23, 24 before he ever heard a presentation of the gospel. And I think that is probably going to be fairly consistent throughout all of Ireland, that there, there is just a lack of understanding. There's a lack of the presentation of a saving gospel. If you could uh, play the need for the gospel right below, please. <clears throat> okay. That's what I was thinking. Okay, can you do the, the first I one? I think again? if you ask most people, you know, what does Jesus Christ require of you, you'd more than likely get a blank stare. You know, they regard him as sort of a figure of history, has something to do with religion, and that's about it. But in, in terms of the impact on their lives, they don't expect there to be any in, impact on their lives. So you, you're starting at the most basic level where you really try to engage with people that, that being a Christian is it's an all-of-life thing. So the very... What we think, I think, is that Ireland has the gospel. They have an understanding of it. When in reality, the, the very foundation, the very ABCs of what we would say the gospel consists of is not even there. That you don't even have the foundation to, to build up from. All right, two more, please. Can you do on missions? It has become a little bit more materialistic. Uh, because in some of these countries like Africa, there are genuine material needs there, and that's much more obvious and in your face. Mm-hmm. But yet, the, the, the key dynamic of mission is surely spiritual. You know, that if people are in a first world country, which Ireland and Western Europe definitely is, it's still a spiritual desert compared to some of these other countries. You know, and if we see that the focus of mission is essentially spiritual, the fact that people here are not starving in the streets or there's not a civil war happening and it's not going to make the, the news on CNN or whatever, surely, biblically, our, um, our definition of missionary need should be essentially spiritual. How are these people hearing the gospel? Are there enough local churches there, indigenous churches, so that we can say, you know, the people in that country have a genuine opportunity to hear the gospel? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in Ireland... I don't think we can, but I know we can't. I think that's a very good point that the evangelical community in the U.S. needs to consider uh, as a whole, as a whole community. What, how do we view missions? Is, is our focus of missions, do we get passionate about missions where we can hold up a picture of somebody living in a grass hut and see somebody so different from us and say, yes, they need the gospel because look how they're living or, or is it spiritual that here's a country where they need the gospel? Uh, <clears throat> was the first one I had up there. You know, 22% of the population is evangelical. Or, or Ireland, where I may not be able to show you a picture of anybody living in a grass hut, but the spiritual state of the country is so dead that, that they, they cannot be forgotten to have people to share the gospel there. And so I think that's a very important point. That where, how are we viewing missions? What is what is the basis for where we decide? Is it merely physical that they have physical needs, and we see a picture of people who are very unlike us, 
Or is it spiritual? Where here's a country that's dead and they need life. <clears throat> you could play the last one, please. Obviously by prayer, and, and you know, you can't really minimize that because the, the, the whole sense of isolation being such a tiny minority, our last census showed that all the evangelical groups together, like, you know, using evangelical in the most generous sense of the term, mm-hmm. would be probably about 1% of the population. Um, and yet, um, evangelicals, not just in the United States, North America, but even uh, other parts, are sending missionaries to countries where there's 5, 6, 10% evangelical population, like some of the African countries. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a sense, because people think they know Ireland, and uh, because it has this generalized Christian label, it's sort of, it's, it's a little bit under the radar in terms of the actual need, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been, I suppose, a generation of progress first of that has brought us all to see it as a priority area for sending missionaries to, you know, to encourage the church here, to church plant alongside the church here, because there are still many sizable towns in Ireland that don't have any evangelical witness mm-hmm. at all. And I can take you to a town uh, about 13 miles west of here, uh, and there's no evangelical witness. We don't even know if there's any believers, individual believers, never mind a, a church. All right, let me continue here. My uh, the screen up here on this computer is gone. So. Can I go back one? Thank you. Oh. There we go. Thank you very much. Okay. These three pictures, <clears throat> these three are three pictures that I think kind of summarize the spiritual state of Ireland. What I want to do is go through each of these three pictures really quick and talk about uh, each one and what they, what they mean. So, here's the first one here. This is a picture I took while I was with Matthew Brennan in Clonmel. I don't know what to call, call these. I just call them Mary Parks because I don't know what the, if they have an official name. But what it was, it was a very nice little park-looking area. And you would go down like a little path and there would be a, a little cement slab and then rows like these right in front. Maybe four or five chairs long and maybe three or four rows back. And then up on the hill was a statue of Mary. And people would be down there sitting on these chairs, uh, sitting on these benches, stone benches, praying to Mary. And there were several of these that we went to all over uh, where, where Matthew uh, Brennan was staying. He took me around to see these. And so I think what we often think of is Ireland is, is Catholic. And, and that's what we know. And that is true still to some degree, but it's going down. It's declining. Once it was to be Irish is to be Catholic. And while that still may be true with older generations, that because of what has happened in the Roman Catholic Church with all these scandals and abuse, people are leaving the church. And so it's not as, as, I think, closely connected, while the identity still may be there. But there are people who are still, this is, this is, this is their identity. To be Irish is to be Catholic. And so these Mary Parks exist where they pray to statues of Mary. This is uh, Knockbridge Parish. While I was there last summer, uh, we had 
who I believe was the first prayer meeting in Knockbridge. Uh, has it continued? I, I hope it has. Great. Um, and where we prayed for this, this uh, we prayed for Knockbridge and the people there. Uh, it, I was reading that well, a, a lot of hard times have kind of come upon Knockbridge. There were some uh, crashes that led to death. There was a suicide. And so what the, the uh, priest of Knockbridge Parish did, let me get his picture up here, was to sell little trinkets for 300 euro, that if you buy them, bad luck will stay away. And so his answer to all of this is, instead of presenting a Christ who can comfort and can, who keep you when times like this, when there is sorrow and tragedy go on, going on, it's, here's a trinket for 300 euro, buy it, and bad luck will stay away. Now this guy is very interesting because he follows a a non-sanctioned uh, cult, I guess, a non-Roman Catholic-sanctioned cult, uh, which is Our Lady Queen of Peace. You can see up there. It started in 1993 by an Irish woman named Christina Gallagher, and Gallagher had claimed to see visions of Mary, and one of them of which she, uh, Mary told her to paint this painting that you see here. There's a bigger one over there. And to... <clears throat> To build a house of prayer where both, both priests and lay people can come and pray to Mary. And since then, Christina has uh, uh, declared herself to be a prophet and to stuff, suffer from stigmata on her feet. And the, the priest of Knockbridge Parish follows her and is actually her spiritual director and has claimed that uh, you know, she has prophesied. And she prophesied, I think, on, in 1999 that the Twin Towers would fall. Uh, in, in New York. So they say she's a prophet. Um, <clears throat> and so this, this priest of Knockbridge Parish is not only you know, offering these trinkets for 300 euros, but is also following this even non-Roman Catholic sanctioned cult, a part of it. So he is the one, he is the spiritual leader of this community. As far as, as, far as I remember, there, there's no evangelical presence there. There's the, the one lady from, from Dundalk who's there. And... Uh, that's it. And when we were at the prayer meeting, somebody mentioned that the last Christian convert they can remember coming from Knockbridge was in 1980. A man in 1980. And that was the last one anybody can remember. So, Roman Catholicism is still there. Uh, but, like I said, it's on the decline in that people are, kind of, especially younger generations, are getting fed up with all the abuse. They're getting jaded. And so the Roman Catholic churches are being sold, and they're being sold and turned into either, uh, you know, either markets or um, homes, or they're being refigured and turned into mosques. There was a, a I don't think this is the picture, no, uh, but a, a Presbyterian, no, sorry, a, a, a church in, in Dublin, but nobody was going to it, and you know, nobody was going to mass there, and so it had to be sold. And a bunch of Muslims bought it and turned it into an Islamic mosque center. And so that's what's happening. is church, These Roman Catholic churches, nobody's going and it, they have to be sold. So Roman Catholicism is one aspect of the religious uh, state of Ireland, even though it's probably not as strong as what we think or what we were accustomed to many years ago. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. This is from a, an Irish newspaper. <clears throat> Let me read it if you can't read it here. It says, Issue is religion. If men could get pregnant, there would be abortion on demand. There would be an abortion clinic on every corner, and abortion would be free. 
The issue is not about the right to life of the unborn, but about religion controlling women's sex and reproduction. I think this is really interesting because this has nothing to do about abortion. It is exactly what the title says. The issue is religion. Religion is the problem. And what has happened is religion in general, doesn't matter if you're Roman Catholic or Presbyterian or Baptist, Pentecostal or whatever, you're religious, so you all get grouped into this big group and say, you're the problem. And so there's no distinction being made. And so the problem is religion. And because of that, secularism, materialistic atheism is on the rise. Um, the Irish government allowed uh, last year, yeah, 2013, for secular atheist weddings. And it was pushed for by the uh, Humanist Association of Ireland. And until now, well, until that time, only clergy could perform weddings. Otherwise, you had to go to the, uh, the registrar's office for a civil ceremony. But they passed a law where you could have a secular atheist wedding if you want. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but it's, it's the attitude and the heart that comes behind this, that is pushing for this, that shows us where the, the trajectory of, of Ireland is, is headed. And what I want to do is I wanted to read you a quote from, from a, a young Irish bride who had a secular wedding. And, and just listen to, to her reason. This is what she said. Basically, we are both atheists and I don't want a religious ceremony. Other weddings we have gone to tended to be all about Jesus, and we're not into that. And so because weddings were about Jesus, she wanted nothing to do with him. My wedding's not about Jesus. It has nothing to do with the Bible or the gospel or you know, as, a, as a portrayal of Christ in the church. It's about me and my husband, and we just want a secular wedding. That's the attitude behind it. In 2013, uh, there was a survey given to many Irish citizens <coughs> excuse me, to rank 119 issues. <laughs> you can't believe it. 119 issues <coughs> as to which was the most important in your life and which one affected your life the most. And religion was one of these issues. Right, let me give you the top ten here. So here are the top ten that they, the majority of Irish citizens said were the issues that affected them the most and impacted their lives. The quality of education, literacy levels, universities and third-level education, childhood development, libraries, air quality, numeracy levels. I'm not entirely sure what that means, numeracy levels. Home life of kids and young people, education attainment, rates, lifelong learning. So apparently all those, those are the top ten things most important to Irish citizens. So where did religion rank? Religion didn't make the top 10. Didn't even make the top 20. Didn't even make the top 50. Didn't even make the top 100. It came in dead last. Of 119 options, I can't even think of 119 options. Somehow they came up with 119 options. And they said, where, how does religion impact who you are as an individual, as being Irish in your daily life? And for these people, they said, it, came, it comes in dead last. It has the least importance as to who I am. Air quality is more important than religion in my life. So, we have 
Roman Catholicism, which is still, still there, though declining. You have a rise of atheism, secular materialism, and then you have, you have this. So all three of these are all together at the same time here. So hopefully you can see this. I, I took this picture while I was there in, in the summer. <clears throat> Let me get my laser here. You can see that everything around here is kind of mowed and, and looks nice, except for this plot right here. And that plot is there untouched because of that one tree right there. That one tree is called a fairy tree. And you don't touch a fairy tree. You don't do anything around it. Otherwise, bad luck will come to you. And it's kind of a, you know, it, it's, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in one sense because if you do anything, when anything bad happens to you, it's you touch the fairy tree. You see you see what happened? You shouldn't have touched it. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if it was down the road sometime because at one point you did something to this fairy tree, this bad luck came came to you. And so it's very superstitious. And so you have all these all three of these things combined and joined together of of an identity that was Catholic, but that is now declining. You have the rise of secularism, materialism, atheism, and you have superstition all grouped together here and all battling out in some sense and all, all waiting for a gospel that can save and provide them what they need because all of these things are going to end up to their damnation because it cannot save them. Let me show you really quick uh, where we'll be. So if you're familiar with Ireland at all, on the east coast, uh, you have Dublin down here. And almost uh, maybe about 45 minutes or so, maybe an hour or so, almost due north of Dublin is Dundalk. And that's where uh, Pastor Stephen Murphy's church is, Dundalk Baptist Church. And what I want to do is just show you uh, a few, few pictures of his church. Actually, I think I have one slide here before that. So here in the outline in red here is County Loud, where Dundalk is. The county, these numbers represent the churches. So here, here's where some of the churches are in all of the county, okay? All of the county. There are two, if you can see there, two in Drogheda, down south. Uh, I believe it's a, let's see, a charismatic church and a Pentecostal church down there. And then there are three in Dundalk, a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, and a um, charismatic church, if I remember correctly. Now, there are a few African churches scattered around, but that's it. That means there is one church in the county, one church in County Laos, for every 22,000 people. But that doesn't really cover it because the churches, they're down here and down there. That means what's here, what's here. What's here? That's where they're located. And with those five churches, that means there's one church for every 22,000 people in the county. Let me talk about one church that I'm kind of fond of here. Uh, Dundalk Baptist Church is the outside. Uh, there's the inside. Um, these are just some, I just wanted to show you some faces to, to put... Put people to this. So you see, we're not talking just abstractly here. These are people that we are, we're talking about and dealing with. Uh, I took these pictures two years ago, I believe. 
Yeah, two years ago, this young woman right here, it was, she was getting baptized in the, in the uh, ocean there, in the water out of, off of uh, Anagastin, and it was cold. You can see how everybody's dressed. Everybody, I, I don't know what she was thinking. It was freezing. If you want to find out how the water felt, you have to ask Stephen because he had to get in there with her. So it was, it was cold. Um, this young man right here is Rory. He's a... Uh, I think he should be finishing up his, his college now. He should be done, um, if not almost done. This is a good friend of mine, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Marley, he fills in for uh, Pastor Stephen usually while, while he's away. Uh, picture of the O'Hares. They have a son that I don't have a picture up there, but I like these pictures because I think this captures who they are. They're just very fun people. Uh, you may know these guys. Uh, here's uh, Pastor Stephen. His wife, Marie, this is their, their son, Daniel, their daughter-in-law, Chastity, and their little one, Elijah. Um, Chastity is from Biloxi. Um, she, told us, she told us that when she first moved to Ireland with Daniel, that she had such a thick, heavy, southern Biloxi accent that no Irish person could understand a word she said. <laughs> so she has worked very hard to... To, to level out her accent so she could be understood because nobody could what, understand what she was saying. And so when, when my wife, when Ashley, who who's grew up in Kentucky, when she talks with, with chastity, all of a sudden it's like all these accents, southern accents come back and it's just amplified and it's like two southern women talking back and forth and the accents get stronger and stronger, I think, as time goes on, so... Uh, so here is, in the red is Philip, in the black there is, is uh, Mick. This is my wife Ashley again. Uh, Mick is, or was, a, uh, a former British naval cook. Uh, he lives in Carlingford, and he, he actually, he suffers from chronic fatigue syndrome, which means he can't stand for really more than two minutes without being laid down for the next couple days. So he lives in Carlingford, which is right here. So here is... Dundalk, so right down here, if we went with Dublin, go up to Dundalk, and right around here on the Cooley Peninsula is Carlingford over there. Carlingford is one area where we have talked about uh, living and working and hopefully trying to uh, eventually start a church plant. Uh, as I remember, there are, no, there are no evangelical churches established there. At one point, there was a, a Presbyterian uh, minister who would go up once a month to do, do something. I don't know if he's still doing that or not, <clears throat> but... Uh, of the Christians who are there, Mick lives there, and I think there may be one other one, if I remember correctly what he told me. So maybe one, maybe two Christians in the entire village. Uh, but Mick gets around on a little motorized scooter because he, just, he, can't, he can't get up and walk or he'll be laid out for the next couple of weeks. So he goes around on his little motorized scooter and hands out tracts to people. Uh, here's Carlingford. It's very picturesque. You can see this castle right here. Uh, it was built by... Prince John from Robin Hood. Do you remember remember that uh, the movie? He's the remember the tiger from uh, from Disney's Robin Hood. That's the only Robin Hood I ever watched. So I associate I associate Prince John with that tiger. Um, here's the main road. The roads the the main roads in the village are the original stone roads from from about the what, the 14th century, 14th 13th century or so. Um, <clears throat> 
it's very picturesque. You can see you've got the, the, the water out here. You've got a castle. You've got the, this mountain, green mountain going up behind you. And so, interestingly, there, there are festivals which go on there, which attract a lot, of, a lot of individuals, especially from Eastern Europe, who are mystics, New Age, New Age mystics and neo-Druids, and they come here for a certain festival because of the beauty of it. Just two more pictures that you can see. There's the castle, uh, another one of Carlingford Bay. It was, uh, we had a good, see the sky? We had a good 15 minutes there. It was really nice. <laughs> so what are the gospel difficulties? The more I've, I've studied about Ireland, the more I've been there, these are the things that in my mind I, I think present blockades, if you will, as to how do you talk, how do you present the gospel to people in Ireland? Whoops, and get the first one up here. So there are no gospel difficulties to presenting in Ireland. <laughs> this is going to be really easy. they can click it for me. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you the first one. Oh, whoops. Whoa. I think we jumped, slide, jumped PowerPoint presentation. Well, while they're fixing that, I'll just, I'll just tell you. The first one is what I, what I call the, the historical problem. And that is that we are, our identity is very much developed and built around our history. And while we may not realize it, who we are and how we think has been affected by what has happened in our history, not just our personal history, but our nation's history. As Americans, if tomorrow we found out that a king was going to be placed over us, there would be something in us cringing and ready to riot because we do not want a king over us. And I, I, I really think that's one reason why so many, so many Christians you know, struggle with the idea of the lordship of Christ and his kingship. Because we, the idea of king, just there's something in us and we don't want it. Because even though we weren't alive during the Revolutionary War, that mentality has impacted how we think. And so the same thing with Ireland. The Reformation never took hold in Ireland. That's because when it came... It came with Cromwell, it came with a sword, and it came under the banner of a British flag. And so to present a gospel that is Protestant is, is in some sense British. And so there, there is a, the, you, have to, you have to make a distinction between, I, I don't want you to be British. I want you to be as Irish as you can be, but I want you to be as Irish as you can be for the glory of God and for the fame of Christ. You know, so how do you how do you break through a barrier, historical barrier, which which is viewed as this type of theology and gospel is very British and is Cromwellian. That's the first one. See if we get the second one here. All right. Identity problem. I I talked about that just briefly a little while ago. The identity problem is, it was once to be Irish was to be Catholic. And while that may be true still with the older generation, to now then say, here is a gospel which is non-Catholic, but which will save you, can to, 
in, in the mind make you think, okay, well, if I reject Catholicism, I therefore cannot be Irish. And so, again, you're, you're faced with how, how, do you, how do you present it in such a way that you can be Irish and you can be a Christian? Because it doesn't mean you have to give up your identity. Because God is glorified in the diversity of his children. And so be Irish. But, you know, I don't want you to be American. I don't want you to be British. I want you to be who you are. But realize that the gospel is what is going to save you. So you have a historical problem, identity problem. Then you have the jaded problem because there's been so much sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church and other scandals. People are just jaded, like I said before. And so you get thrown in with a lot and they're just tired of religion in general and you're part of the problem. The issue is religion, just like that article said. And then the last one is the sec- what I was to say, the secular problem. So where do you turn? If, if religion is the issue, you're lumping it all together, you don't want to be Protestant because that's very British and Cromwellian, where do you turn? Well, you turn to secular atheism, natural materialism. You uh, Maybe you adopt neo-Druidism and the revival of ancient Celtic religions. And so that's, these are the, the as I see in the, the, the blockades, if you will, that are set up, that how do you penetrate each of these blockades? Thank you, sir, very much. All right. We are currently in the process of, of raising support. We have to raise roughly $7,600 a month. You can see the breakdown there. Uh, we are officially at 45.7% of our goal for our monthly needs. I say officially, uh, and I put it in quotes, because we have some people who have said they want to support us, but they haven't told us how much, so I'm not including them. So whenever they do, then hopefully that, that, you know, that will go up. So what we need is uh, $4,103 more a month is where we currently are right now. Uh, here's our breakdown of what we have so far. Uh, we have 17 individuals supporting us, which make up 20% of what we, uh, what we currently have. Our sending church, uh, Heritage Baptist Church, has given us 10%. Non-ARBCA churches, three of them, 6.5%. And ARBCA churches, there has been four so far, uh, make up 9.5%. So what we need left. Here are, here's a, kind of support levels as I broke down. If we had 21 supporters at $200 a month, then we'd be done. 21 supporters at $200 a month, and we'd be done. I know $200 is, is a lot, so you can see it goes down from there. If we had 27 supporters at $150 a month, then we'd be done. Um, 41 supporters at $100 a month, and 82 at $50 a month. So we, we are very close. You know, If we had 21 supporters at $200 a month, then we're finished. We, we, we've reached our goal. Um, all right, uh, I think it's second to last slide here. Um, so this past summer in 2013, I took my family, my wife and my kids, and we went to Ireland, and we basically wanted to see how, what is it going to be like to live here. So we had a house, we had a car. You know, Ashley, was, uh, she had to buy food, she made it there. Uh, she had to do the, do the laundry. She was out hanging clothes up on, on the line because that's what we had and, and trying to dry them, and then it rained 10 minutes later, and so... We had to figure out how in the world do we dry these clothes. 
Um, some of the churches we visited uh, in Massachusetts, you can see all, all of them there. Uh, I hope to be visiting Houston. There's a, a church there that we went to while I was getting my Master's in Biblical Languages in Houston that has invited us to come. So hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. And we're still in the process of raising startup costs. Um, our startup costs, I think, are in your... Uh, the folder that you received shows uh, 40000 is what we, we need to be able to get going and, and uh, just get started and over there. And then we're, we're raising our, our monthly support. So we're almost about 50% of what we need. All right. Let me conclude here with a, a quote from John Owen. In uh, 1649, take a drink here. In 1649, John Owen had recently returned from the early stages of the Irish campaign. And he preached a sermon before the London Parliament, and that sermon would later be published under the title of uh, The Steadfastness of Promises and the Sinfulness of Staggering. And by the conclusion of the sermon, at least one thing was clear. Owen was calling for Ireland to be won, not by the sword, but by the gospel. And so I want to leave you with Owen's, with Owen's words to Parliament, but I want you to take them to heart as well. I want you to listen to his call and hear it as if he is talking to you, because this is my word for, for you all as well. He says, How is it that Jesus Christ is in Ireland only as a lion staining all his garments with the blood of his enemies, and none to hold him out as a lamb sprinkled with his own blood to his friends? Is it the sovereignty and interest of England that is alone to be there transacted? For my part, I see no farther into the mystery of these things, but that I could heartily rejoice that innocent blood being expiated, the Irish might enjoy Ireland so long as the moon endureth, so that Jesus Christ might possess the Irish. God hath been faithful in doing great things for you. Be faithful in this one. Do your utmost for the preaching of the gospel in Ireland. I would there were for the present one gospel preacher for every walled town in the English possession in Ireland. And so I, I give that to you, that I would that there were the present one gospel preacher for every town and village and city in Ireland because it is in need of the gospel and it is in need of workers. We have about two minutes. Five minutes, okay. If there are, are any questions, um, you're more than welcome to ask. If I don't know, uh, Stephen is here to, to help me. So if there are any questions, please uh, go ahead. Otherwise, we'll... Yes, sir. Uh, I'll let Stephen answer that in just a second because I'm going to say one thing about that. It's interesting that I just found out about, uh, oh man, it's about maybe three months ago or so. They had ranked the number of the countries as to which country has the highest percentage of their population as missionaries being sent out. And Northern Ireland was number, number five or six on the list as percentage-wise as the highest number of people sending out missionaries to go somewhere else. Now, if Northern Ireland is sending out missionaries and is five or six in the world for the percentage of them going out, and Ireland, the Republic of Ireland is only 1%, what that means is 
Northern Ireland is sending out missionaries everywhere else but across the border. So let, let me have, have Stephen answer that maybe more fully. All I, can, all I can say to that is he's got it exactly right. Um, and it's, it's no condemnation strictly on our brethren in Northern Ireland, but the, the intensity of bitterness that was there after the Irish War of Independence, when in all honesty many Protestants were driven from their homes in the Republic, some of them found refuge in Northern Ireland, and to be honest, it was very difficult to overcome that level of bitterness. So you would see missionaries sent to China, to India, and very few, if any, to the Republic of Ireland. And one of the groups who did do their utmost to try at least to maintain links were the Baptist Association in Ireland, which is predominantly Northern Ireland, but had a few scattered, and I mean a few scattered remnants left in the Republic. Hopefully that answers your question. Michael is such a linguistic expert that he's going to learn Gaelic by the time he takes off and lands in Ireland. I'm definitely going to give it a try. Anything else? All right, well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you, and please keep us in your prayers. And if you have any questions or, or want to talk to, to me or, or Stephen afterward, please, please come up, and uh, I'd love to talk with you. So thank you very much.